I had a really good week this week um, in writing. Finally got a breakthrough that I have been praying for for years. Very exciting. There's just sometimes a benefit of preaching through these things and not just thinking of them, reading them, um, but saying it out loud and then to meditate on it. And not only in the preparation, but actually in the delivery. Uh, when preachers talk about unction, they're talking about the Holy Spirit's work in their life in the preaching ministry that sometimes we get, uh, I'm not going to say revelation because that would be error, um, but we get illumination even in the process of preaching. Uh, and we call it unction, and it's unction just means oily. Um, that that's the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes there's a great benefit there. Uh, and that, I think, was have been helpful to me. And that's why we I chose to do this in this format. Uh, I think it'll greatly benefit uh, what I'm writing about. So tonight, uh, is we talked last week, that tonight we're going to really deal with a little bit of your responses. Uh, several of you have con talked to me throughout this week, either last Sunday night afterwards, uh, and then even throughout the week. And so I wanted to address a couple of those things and then see if there were any other questions, concerns. And so I'm just going to let you meditate on that because I'm going to answer those two issues. I don't think it's going to take me very long that I want to address anything. And by the way, uh, for chapter one, chapter two, I haven't received anyone's back, so I don't know if they're just so spectacularly written that you just can't imagine anything to mention there, but please get those to me. I'm sure that's not the case. As I said, we're not, this isn't Revelation divinely inspired and not to be added to the back of your Bible. Uh, and so when we, uh, several of the questions that were asked were very good and they are tied into this chapter, so I want to address them in conjunction with this. In the chapter, I talked about Jesus becoming flesh and that he didn't become flesh like you and I are. That is, we inherited sin from our fathers and so we inherited death. And therefore, we inherited the effects of sin in our bodies, the limitations of sin. I didn't develop that very much and after conversing with several of you, um, I think I'm going to have to add at least a couple of paragraphs uh, in that section of that chapter. Uh, when we talk about Jesus becoming a man in the order of Adam, that is, he came as a perfect man. And so uh, that brings us to some challenging questions uh, that, um, and some hopefully some insight. Nowhere in all of history do we know what a unstained by sin child, how they develop. For Adam was created as an adult and already mature, and Eve as well. And so we don't really know what, how the development would be of a sinless child in not so much we're talking about the physical development, uh, but really of the spiritual and mental development of a child. And so today we're going to talk about kids. We have a lot of kids here tonight. So we're going to talk about that. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. 
Gospel of Luke uh, gives us an insight into a little piece of Jesus' childhood. And many people will say, well, that is evidence, this account is evidence that he was God in the flesh. And I would contend differently because, as we said, he emptied himself of his divinity, and I don't think we have any access to that in his time on earth outside of what is available to you, which is Holy Spirit. So let's look at this, and we're going to go to verse 40, start in verse 40 of Luke chapter 2. This is, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And again, as a child, that's the description. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But suppose him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why do you seek me? Do you not, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So this account reveals something about the nature of Jesus Christ um, in his childhood. Okay, now today is Daniel's birthday. He's no longer 12 years old, so I can't pick on him because now he's 13. Which means he's an adult. He should be getting a job soon, working his way through life, right? Right? You've had a year. I mean, you're not 12 anymore. At 12 years old, this is a, and I think this is one of the passages that is strongly indicates it, this is why in the Jewish community you have your bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs at the age of 12. At the age of 12, you're considered transition from childhood to adulthood. It is the end of your childhood, the beginning of your adulthood. Uh, we make that 18, 21, 25, 40. I don't know what we're doing. We're making it older and older. 12, 12 years old. And that we should be transitioning and starting to have adult expectations of us. Uh, and I believe that because we don't is why we have a host of problems and why teenagers have such problems with their parents because they're still being treated as a child when they shouldn't be. Um, and so Jesus at the age of 12 recognized that he is at the appropriate age to begin engaging in his father's business. Now, Joseph wasn't his father. And so he was we find uh, several things true about Jesus at this point. He was very self-aware of who he was. When we think about him emptying himself of his divine attributes to such a degree that we've talked about that he could be actually be tempted, that he had a will different than the Father, and all things we've talked about in the past, um, well, 
Did he have access to divine knowledge, to divine power, to divine things? And my contention is no. He emptied himself of that, but he did not empty himself of awareness of who he was and why he was here. How early did he gain that? We don't know. Uh, probably a lot earlier than we think. Because uh, we don't know, it's not that we don't know what a divine child would be like. We can imagine that. And, and there's a, a legend, you know, that he picked up a dead bird and gave it life and it flew away. Not in the scriptures for a reason, because it's not consistent with this truth that Christ emptied himself to become human and he was 100% human when he was walking on the earth, uh, even as he could claim equality with divinity, he exercised self-sovereignty, gave up access to that in order to become human. There was no point in his life that he became human. He gave up that he em or that he emptied himself. So if someone said, did he empty himself at his baptism? Was that when it happened? No, he emptied himself before he even came in order to come. And so in that condition, I do not, we're not talking about a child that's going to be like a God that's going to be talking at, at four days old and, and saying, Mother, I need my diaper change. No, it, we're not going to see that. Um, he is 100% a child, but not like your children. Not because of his divinity, but because of his perfection. He was a perfect child. And when I say perfect, it doesn't mean that he didn't mess his pants. Um, rather, that his mind, his heart, was not conditioned to sin. It was not stained by sin. So we have not only a spiritual innocence, that is that Jesus uh, had no sin nature, but I am convinced that he had none of the effects of sin in his body or in his mind. And therefore, we're dealing with a child that has access to his intellect on a scale that we really aren't familiar with. And so in that sense, we have to go back into the Garden of Eden to say, what was Jesus' mind like? What was it capable of doing? We're not here seeing Jesus stump anybody um, with his divine knowledge. He's not exercising his omniscience here. He's not showing his divinity at all. What he is showing is, what would a 12-year-old be like if he had no sin? And again, we have to go back to the garden. So what, did Adam, what was Adam capable of doing without sin in his life? Right, he was given a job on the day of his creation. So what did God already create? He already created what that day? Sixth day. What does God create? All right. All the animals walk the face of the earth, the livestock, things like that. Um, not the birds and the fishes. They were already created. And so then he comes to man. He's going to create man. And he's not done creating, so we're not late in the day, but we're certainly well into the day, he's come to creating man, he's formed him out of the dust of the earth, breathed his nostrils the breath of life, man becomes a living being. Now, what is his first task? Name the animals. 
How long did it take him? It was less than a day's work. Okay, that's the kind of intellect that we're talking about when we're coming to Jesus. Scientists tell us that we have, I don't know, 10, 12% of our brain capacity that we actually use. Jesus Christ didn't have those limitations. Can you imagine how early he would have been able to speak? Yeah, probably pretty early. And yes, he, he, his mom probably walked around now and says, my boy was potty trained in six months. You know, I don't know, whatever it was. You know, um, he had a perfect intelligence. Not divine, but on a scale. Now, was it fully developed? No, we're going to talk about that here really quickly because it starts off he grew and it ends that he's going to grow. Yes. Well, we're going to talk about it. Yeah, we're going to see about this fellowship because he doesn't have broken fellowship at all. And so he is not uh, complete. He's still maturing. And so I could be exaggerating because we don't have any reference point of what a child without the taint of sin and the limitations it brings is like. It could be more in keeping with what we see in young people um, today. But... Um, when we come to 12 years old, he is, first of all, self-aware. I want you to know that. He knows who he is, and he knows who his father is. Right? And so that means that he is spiritually very attuned. All right? Much more so. And don't think that children can't be spiritually attuned. I think they would be far more spiritually attuned if you gave them access to more spiritual information and less worldly information. If they spend more time engaging in spiritual conversation than entertainment, um, they would be able to be more spiritually attuned. Okay, And so we have a responsibility in that re respect, but this young person, it says, had, was already, before this accountant, and that's why I read verse 40, had already was strong in the spirit. He was already um, showing evidences of his fellowship with God. Again, not interrupted. He was perfect. He had no interference between him and God in fellowship. So again, we have to go back to the garden to find out what that's like but again, we don't have a reference point to know how to apply it to Jesus. Uh, so we find himself aware in fellowship with the Spirit, or in fellowship with God, strong in the Spirit, it says. And it was filled with wisdom. And yes, the grace of God was upon him, and grace is favor. All right, God's favor was on him, obviously, because he didn't carry any of the separation from God, you mean the penalty of sin, and frankly, uh, again, we don't know what that's like, but he was, he had a wisdom, we would describe him having a wisdom beyond his years, but only from our reference point of only dealing with children who are sinners. Okay, uh, we don't have a reference point to understand this. It would have been a great interview of Mary to say, what was it like raising that kid? 
Um, but we just don't have that, and we don't have to dwell on it, but we do have this account. But I want you to recognize that while he had wisdom, he was still developing, because in verse 52, at the end of this, it says he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor or grace with God and men. So he wasn't done developing. He's going to continue to increase and grow in those areas. And so while it's a perfect spirit, mind, body, heart, it's not a mature one. Okay? And so he is maturing as a human, but not like us in the sense that he did not have the ravages of sin in his being. And therefore, we truly have a, a development patterns distinct. So when Jesus encounters them, let's talk about what he does. As a 12-year-old, self-aware, full of wisdom, having fellowship or favor with God and, and the Spirit of the Lord, strong in the Spirit. And that doesn't mean strong in the... And you notice that the Spirit in verse 40 isn't capitalized. Do you notice that? That means his Spirit was strong. He is not filled with the Holy Spirit at this point. It's his own spirit. But again, not a spirit tainted by sin. A perfect spirit. All of your children, all the children here have a spirit. Correct? It's part of the defining who they are. And so um, we don't want to crush their spirit, right? We don't want to destroy that. We want it to grow. We want it to nurture it. We want to direct that spirit to God and to that uh, to a right relationship there, as well as a right relationship with one another. And so Jesus Christ is going to grow in these areas. But at 12 years old, he was sufficiently mature to take a place in the adult world. So, what is that place that he took? Did he become a great rabbi at 12 years old? No, but he takes up a place on the, in the Temple Mount because that's his father's house. He's going to do his father's business. He's got to go to his father's house. How long has he been there unaccompanied by his parents? Three days. Well, at 12 years old, they would have bar mitzvahed. So I don't know if they would have had that at this point. We don't know if that is a pat, that is a practice they conducted back then. Well, he was in Nazareth. He wasn't in Jerusalem. So, but certainly they are taught Hebrew. Okay, so he would have known Hebrew, uh, known the Torah. Uh, but what is the place that he takes? Where is where do they find they find him three days? Where did he sleep for three days? What did he eat for three days? You ever think about that? What was a 12-year-old doing bopping around Israel or Jerusalem for three days? Well, he didn't bop around. Um, he was in the temple. Okay, we don't even often think about that. Every mother did. Well, what was that kid doing? How, who took care of him for three days? Um, and so already he was far more vested and interested in the things of God than in the uh, that even his care for his own body. We don't know how he took care of those things. Um, but we find him, they don't find him in the temple till the third day. And so uh, it's been 
after three days, they found him. That, I don't know if that's inclusive of the day that they left. It might have been four days. Because they went a day's journey. might have been five. They went a day's journey away, which means they had to come a day's journey back, and then it was the third day that they found him. So whether that was third day was inclusive of two travel days or three days after they got there, uh, that would be five days. Three to five days, the kid, the kid, the young man is there, 12 years old. What position is he taking in the temple? In verse 46, it says, he, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers. So if you are sitting in the midst of the teachers, what role have you taken? No. You're the student. You are sitting there and... I don't know if it started out with one teacher or a couple of teachers, but by the time we get to the third day, all the teachers are there with him because they have found an exceptional student. And what is the student doing? He is asking, for, no, I'm sorry, he's listening and asking questions. He is in the learning process. He is taking the place, the role of a student in the temple, listening to the rabbis and asking them questions. There's no doubt what he's asking about. He's asking about things out of God's word uh, pertaining to life and godliness and, and, and what God requires. Now, is this revealing his divinity? No, he's revealing perfect humanity. What is a perfect child who's in fellowship with God, capable of, of doing what well, he's capable of learning incredible amounts of information. Even our children are little learning machines, aren't they? Which is why you should be extraordinarily cautious about plunking them down in front of a screen that's pumping information into their minds, both what is obvious and what is very subtle, and some things are even hidden, uh, to... Uh, train their minds. You should be very cautious about that. And so, Jesus Christ is there. He's going to fill his mind. He's going to listen and ask questions. And that's a child's role. That's a student's role. He's now leaving childhood and entering adulthood, but he's not an adult. He is entering adult. He is an adult, but he's a new adult. Okay, so now his, his access, he has access to the temple and he wants to listen and ask questions. But that's not all he does because some of the questions he's asking are so difficult that they're not really providing answers. Because it says in the next verse, all who heard him which wasn't just the teachers, but other disciples, the other listeners, the other ones who would have been there to be taught. Uh, we're astonished at his understanding and answers. So, um, and by the way, Jesus is going to pick up this same teaching style of asking questions and giving answers. Uh, Q&A, question and answer, is a very effective teaching style. So I ask a young person a question, 
Um, I do this in real life clubs all the time. I ask them a series of questions, uh, try to get them to see if they can come up with the answer. Uh, and so the answers we're talking about aren't necessarily answers that were astonishing in their revelation of divine information. It was rather astonishing for a 12-year-old to have that deep of interest and that significant of a, of a grasp on biblical truth and its application. Again, they are engaging a mind that is naturally superior to theirs because it has no sin. And I would contend it has no limitations that sin would bring. And while we are and while we can say, well, he's showing that he's divine, we don't need him to show that he's divine. Uh, and his testimony is going to be that. If you don't believe in me, believe in what? The works that I do. And those works are done by his, his the work of the Holy Spirit in him, and that's why he says you can do greater works than I'm doing even. So if his works are the sole evidence of divinity, and we need this to prove his divinity, well, God says you're going to do greater ones. Does that make you divine? Does that make you God? Is Peter God because he did the same miracles as Jesus? No, obviously. And so we don't need to prove his divinity. That's not the purpose here. The purpose of Luke is to show this is a child that is aware of who he is and has uh, a fellowship with God, the grace of God's upon him, is strong in the spirit, and has wisdom, and that wisdom is, is not necessarily the evidence of his divinity, but the evidence of his sinlessness. And, and that's the answer I want to give. That's a lengthy answer, but I think it's deserving of it, uh, to not just one or two, but several came up and asked, and throughout the week even mentioned it to me. So um, that's what I really want to direct your attention to and that was just, I know I only wrote one little phrase that we're not dealing with a man that we're familiar with humanity like we are because it's humanity without sin. We have to go back to Adam to see what Jesus was like in terms of what is it to be a perfect human in terms of what your faculties would be like, your mental faculties, uh, your spiritual faculties, your emotional faculties even, uh, let alone your physical faculties. But they weren't fully mature because he kept growing in them. And so there was potential is what I'm trying to say, right? We still have potential. Uh, so while we say he had perfection, that doesn't necessarily mean that he had re attained uh, his full potential. Um, he's still growing in that knowledge. And I would contend he was probably growing in that knowledge till the age of 30. Um, why? Because that's when he takes up ministry. Why didn't he start ministering at age 12? He says, I should be about my father's business. Why didn't he? <laughs> he was still growing, but he was taking his place to tell. His statement to Mary is what? Shouldn't I be about my father's business? 
right? That's his statement. You should expect me to be going about this, okay? He is, he is expressing that this is what he should be doing. Now, here's the response. He went down with them and came to Nazareth, that's in verse 51, and was subject to them. Why didn't he stay there and start? Because he's going to be submitting to his parents. He is surrendering himself to his parents. He is subjecting himself to them. Okay? Because that's what the Bible requires, what God requires. Honor your father and mother. Even if you're a perfect child, doesn't give you the right to ignore the wishes of your parents. Mary and Joseph weren't going to leave him in Jerusalem. So he went with them and he subjected himself to them. He surrendered his, his will, his expectation uh, to them. And this statement, I should be about my father's business, tells us that he was ready to engage them, but he was going to engage them. in, And they could easily have just left him there. Why? Why could they easily have left him there? Huh? Hannah did. Because there were rabbinic schools in Jerusalem. They could have left him with any one of them. They would have been glad to have him. There were rabbinic schools. So this rabbi had this group and this rabbi had that group. But Jesus didn't stay. He left and was subject to Mary and Joseph. Yes? In whatever capacity you want to see this, his explanation to his parents is, you should have expected me to be here. Okay? Because um, this is what I'm here for. Should have expected that. Because they're coming in kind of in a... Uh, Mary is really approaching him really kind of with a rebuke. Do you notice what she says? Why have you done this to us? You know, we were anxious. We sought you anxiously. You know... You naughty kid. That's okay. And his response is because he's not the one in the wrong, they are. Um, you should have expected me to be here. I'm 12 years old now. This is why I've come. You knew that from before I was born, what my purpose, what my mission was. You should have expected me to be here. Um, but because it made them anxious, because it's not what they wanted, because of that, he says, I'll honor you and go with you if that's what you desire. And that's what he did. Now, does that delay? Now, some people have taken this to the degree of saying, well, he didn't enter ministry until he was 30 because he stayed with his family until Joseph died. Uh, we have no biblical evidence for that. The age of 30 um, if you go into the law, is used over and over and over again for when you can go into the Lord's service. And so the priests uh, and thing, people, individuals like that, by and large, now were there exceptions? Obviously, Samuel's an exception as a child he could serve. And Jesus Christ certainly would fulfill that role. He could have entered it very early. Uh, but in socially, the expectation was at 30, you will um, begin public ministry. In other words, by then, your training, education, and 
and your internship, if you will, your apprenticeship would be completed, and now you could enter into ministry. And that's very, that age 30 is used consistently in the Old Testament of being the age when you will start doing your job, and you'll do that job for 20 years. And then you retire, unless you're the high priest, and you have to do that till you're dead. The other ones would serve from 30 to 50. And then you had other responsibilities. Okay? Any other comments, questions? Yes? Yeah, there's, uh, it's just that whole idea that Christ here is um, drawing on what Mary and Joseph knew. They knew who he was. He wasn't just self-aware, they were aware of who he was. And uh, we don't know the other circumstances around this that um, they sh- his expectation was, well, you would know what I should be, what I'm doing and what I'm here for. Uh, and really he turns that back on them. But yeah, in terms of a parent, yeah, you can understand that. Um, but it's just interesting that they didn't want him to stay there. They wanted him to go back with them. And uh, anyone that wants to claim in their Mariology that Mary was somehow herself a divine being would, you know, with this engagement, uh, among others, would be a good challenge to that, that she is semi-divine or whatever, right? So let's, let's go on. There, that was one issue that, that was um, brought to me by several people. Um, the other question was uh, clarification a little bit on his ministry by the Holy Spirit and his and did that include his knowledge? What did Jesus know once he was built the Holy Spirit? Um, and what obviously he didn't know everything and uh, based upon one statement, right? So what was the one statement that we know Jesus Christ didn't know everything? They asked him, when are you going to return? He says, the day and the hour is only known by the Father. Um, I don't know that. Uh, and so that's that one passage. Now, were there other things that Jesus did know? He knew what was in the hearts of men, so he didn't have to have them tell him. It says he knew them. Now, was that his divinity, or was that the Spirit? There are other things Jesus says he knew. He knew where and what was going on with Andrew, right? So he tells something to Andrew. Well, when you were underneath this tree, I saw you there. And Andrew goes, oh, okay. Um, You are God. You are Messiah. Okay. Um, Are these evidences of his divinity, of him accessing divine knowledge? Or is this information provided to him by Holy Spirit? In our list of spiritual gifts, one of the spiritual gifts is specifically given as knowledge. You don't hear people talk about that gift very much these days because often we put that into the category of revelatory gifts that were for the apostolic age, this gift of knowledge. 
um, that God grants that to us. And one of the things the Holy Spirit can do, one of the gifts that he gives to men is knowledge, not just information of, and the question is what knowledge is it that they have? Is it knowledge of the future? Is it knowledge of the past? Is it knowledge about what's going on in people? And, and the Bible really doesn't explain that very much. Um, we know when Paul was heading to Jerusalem before he was arrested that he encountered many individuals, pretty much every place he stopped, somebody told him, when you get to Jerusalem, there's chains waiting for you. All right, you're going to be in prison. Um, and, and so that aspect of prophecy, of, of telling this knowledge, was certainly evidence that late in the church age. Um, but in terms of God's word, there, there's a word of knowledge. Now, the charismatics have taken the word of knowledge and like, I know something going on in here. There's someone here. Well, if they really had divine knowledge, they'd be able to just identify that person without just giving these things and waiting for that person. He's talking about me. You know, well, you know, if I gave a list of things in a massive group of thousands of people, 1,500 people, um, the likelihood that somebody out there thinks I'm talking about them is pretty high. Okay? But to have this specific divine knowledge. Now, does Satan have knowledge? Yes, but not divine knowledge. Okay? And so... He knows a lot of what has happened. He knows a lot about people. And I always struggle when you want to talk about their past and things like that and, and not address what's going on in their heart right now. Jesus says that with, I contend, with the Holy Spirit, he knew what was in the hearts of men. So I have no problem with those passages because we come into later passages and, again, that's available to you. Within the church, at least in the first generation, the first century, those gifts were available to you through the Holy Spirit. Again, Jesus says, you will have the same power that I've had. Right? After you receive the Holy Spirit, right? Acts 1.8, you'll receive this power. And so it is not necessary to demonstrate his divinity. Now, what about the messianic prophecies and the requirements? Okay, Were certain miracles associated with messianic prophecies? Certainly. And they are evidence, and that's why Jesus says, if you don't believe me, believe the works. If you don't believe what I teach, at least believe what I'm doing. That these works, and that's why you can't blaspheme that. And so they are certainly messianic fulfillments that identify him as the anointed one, the Christ. Um, but really, uh, they never, they, they are not the main mechanism by which the, that generation identified him as God, as divine. Okay? Elisha and Elijah and Samuel all had that kind of knowledge, right? Do you remember Elisha standing there with that guy from, from the north, um, and, from Syria, and he's just staring at him, and all of a sudden he just starts breaking down, 
And he says, you're going to be a destroyer of Israel. He looks into his heart and he sees what he is conceiving to do. That he has already conceived in his heart and mind that he's going to go kill his king. And he does. As soon as they get back. Okay? And that is knowledge. Well, does that show that Elijah is divine? No, it shows that the Spirit was on Elijah. Elisha, sorry. And so um, we don't, when the Bible says he gave it up 100%, and I made the statement throughout his time on earth, it doesn't just apply to can he be tempted. It's all of these areas that his knowledge, his power, his uh, wisdom, all of that were dependent upon God, the favor of God. They were dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and it manifests itself in if, and that's why he says, you, it's better for you that I go away, that the Comforter can come and dwell in you. That it's better for you to have the Spirit within you that Jesus had inside of him than to have Jesus walking beside you and you not have the Holy Spirit in you. Because that was the condition of the disciples. And how did that do for them? Yeah, it, it didn't work out so good, did it? Because they said foolish things. They, um, you know, they, they didn't get it. He, they couldn't understand his teaching. Um, They're they fighting over who's going to be greatest. And they came, all of that while they were with Jesus. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says, it's better for you that I go away so you can receive Holy Spirit. Now you'll have the Spirit within you instead of just being around someone who has the Holy Spirit in them like Jesus did. And so um, we don't need all of those occasions of him showing that to recognize his divinity. It's his teaching that ultimately communicates to us his divinity. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. These are the statements. That's why Jesus says you should be believing what I teach and believing in me, but if not, at least believe the works, because I've done the works that the prophets said you should look for in the Messiah. Okay, but that is not necessarily his divinity coming out. That is fulfillment of prophetic signs that Israel is supposed to look for. Okay? Other questions, comments? I went a lot longer than I thought, but it's okay. Yes? Satan had access to the At least prior to the, uh, he had access to heaven at least prior to the ascension, when Christ ascended. Oh, yes. Yeah, satanic knowledge and, and demonic knowledge is, is higher than ours. If you read the book of Enoch, if you ever have access to that, um, most of the innovations, uh, early innovations that we think of, you know, how did you look at rock and decide you could get metal out of that? A lot of those early innovations are, are directly connected to the fallen angels communicating information they weren't supposed to communicate to men. They didn't just cohabitate with us and produce offspring. They were revealing secrets about creation, how their created order works. 
And men then took that knowledge, and that's why we have this explosion of technology, if you think about it. It's described in Genesis as well, that you had these three men who were responsible for three developments, um, metallurgy, music, and uh, portable domiciles, tents. And, and so we have it referenced there, but not where that source came from. But in the book of Enoch, it says this is part of their sin, was that they gave that kind of knowledge. They have superior knowledge of created order because they have it from a heavenly access and not just a earthly access. And they had that prior to coming, and they were beings that were already present. Um, and uh, did Adam have that kind of knowledge? Uh, don't know if he had fully developed it. That's why I think that the fall was pretty soon after his, after his creation, uh, rather than many, many centuries after. I think the fall was pretty quick, uh, like maybe weeks or months, rather than decades, because of his mind would have been able to explore and unlock a lot more of our created order. Now, is man capable of doing that without demonic assistance? Um, yes. Um, but even in this day and age, I do not discount the fact that demonic activity um, is going on in some of the innovations that we think are so wonderful, that maybe God doesn't. And that's listed for you in Revelation, right? One of the things that happens in the very end times is that it says three frogs go forth and they introduce these, these incredible technologies that boost men's confidence that they can take on God. And based upon what those three demons are capable of leading men into understanding the created orders, what I understand that to mean, they actually think they can have a fighting chance at Armageddon to take on God himself. So don't discount that there might be demonic activity in development of technology throughout history. But during that time, specifically, those who had cohabitated were destroyed for that. And then we have it resurging in the very end, according to Revelation. Now, um, I don't think so, because they really come out during the seven years. So I don't think we've seen them yet. Um, Revelation 13 says that the beast is going to produce signs and wonders. Uh, and one of those wonders is the atomic bomb. It's listed there. The fire fall down from heaven in the sight of men. That's what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that one, and then the talking pictures. So those are two things that have in Revelation 13, but those are before the seven years. During the seven years, and it's even after the trumpet judgments and the thunder judgments, it's in the bowl judgments that these are let loose on the earth and they do additional wonders and signs. They do something, some, they are able to manipulate creation to such a extraordinary ways that men really think they have a fighting chance against God. Even after all the other judgments have been poured out on them, they still think with this technology we'll win. So no, we haven't seen that technology yet. All right, well, we're going to uh, wrap this up next week. And again, if you have those chapters to give me, that'll help. And then we'll also give you next week the next chapter. 
And so we'll, Lord willing, have that ready. Um, I already have that one completed. And so looking forward to that. We, our time has passed. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for all that you've done for us. And Lord, um, we thank you that you put yourself in such a vulnerable place as a woman's womb, as a manger in a stable, as a child being raised in a home of imperfect parents. That you've placed yourself there for our good, for our salvation. Lord, we continue to thank you for the extent that you were willing to go to save us. And we just want to thank you. In Christ Jesus' name.